For more information about Ionka Shonibare at African Art, visit their website and check out their special behind-the-scenes blog about the exhibition. Also, their program material is here near the door, so before you leave, please don't forget to pick it up. It's really exciting. Before I introduce Ienka and Karen, I would like to thank Hirschhorn staff and the staff of the African Museum for making this program possible. It has been wonderful to collaborate with them. I also would like to especially thank Jenny Lihe of Public Programs here at the Hirschhorn Museum, who is always excellent and looks after all the details. I also would like to thank Henry Thaggart for his generous support of tonight's lecture. We also would like to thank our members for their continued support. And if you are interested in being a member, please visit our website and find the site which says Join and Engage section. Now to our two speakers. Ian Kashonibar was born in London in 1962 to Nigerian parents and he was raised biculturally, spending time both in England and in Nigeria. Ienka's work explores contemporary African identity and its relationship to European colonialism through painting, sculpture, installation, and moving image. Shonibare is best known for his work with visual symbols, especially the richly patterned Dutch wax fabric produced in Europe for a West African market that he uses in a wide range of applications. He was shortlisted for the Turner Prize in 2004 and designated a member of the British Empire by Prince Charles in 2005. Dr. Karen Melbourne has been curator at the National Museum of African Art since May 2008. Her expertise indicates includes the arts and pageantry of West Zambian and contemporary African art. She is currently developing a major traveling show for the African Museum and a catalog entitled Earth Matters, Land as Material and Metaphor in the Arts of Africa. Before we start the program with Ienka and Karen, I would like to introduce Richard Karen, the Smithsonian Undersecretary for History, Art and Culture, who would like to say a few words. Thank you, Richard. Thank you and uh, welcome to what I expect will be a uh, wonderful and interesting evening. Uh, the other night, uh, Yinka Shunabari, and kind of considering why he got into art uh, in his own humorous style, said, well, because of the girls. I thought that was pretty cool. But of course, there's a lot more than that. And I hope that everyone here uh, has seen or will go see the marvelous uh, exhibition uh, in the National Museum of African Art. Uh, every installation, every turn you take through that uh, exhibition uh, offers a wonderful uh, commentary, uh, insightful perspective uh, that really is, uh, is quite, quite striking. Um, Yinka's work uh, is here also in the Hirshhorn, uh, just outside the uh, auditorium, uh, and indeed could be many places in the Smithsonian. Uh, the fact that his work comments on artistry itself, but also on the nature of the environment, on our history, on our connections between different cultures around the globe. Uh, we could even do Hinka Shonibari visits the Smithsonian uh, and have uh, exhibits all over. Uh, I'm particularly heartened by the fact that this uh, evening tonight represents a collaboration between the Hirshhorn and the National Museum of African Art. I think it also heightens another connection, which is, of course, the Hirshhorn's uh, devotion to the lives of living artists and the encouragement that our culture only will flourish and survive if we indeed encourage artists to create. And I think the same could be said in African art. While we have marvelous treasures and you go through the, the Tishman collection um, in African art and see the wonders that the people really made over centuries and even millennia, it's 
so heartening uh, to see contemporary African artists who continue to weave uh, their own experience, contemporary experience, into uh, beautiful and profound things for our enjoyment and edification. So that's all I have to say. I'm sure Karen and Inka will say a lot more. Thank you. As an artist of African origin, mm -hmm. uh, there is a way in which one is actually perceived. So in other words, uh, regardless of what I might say, I will be seen in a particular way, you know, whether I want to deal with that or not. So I decided, well, I guess I ought to deal with it. So, um, and then I went to, uh, there's a market in London called Brixton Market. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then I started to talk to them about Batik and I was made to understand that uh, you know, Batik is Indonesian-influenced, produced by the Dutch uh, for sales to the, uh, uh, to the African market. And then I did a little more research. I found out that the Indonesians preferred their own Batik and they wanted to protect their own markets. So the Dutch tried Africa and uh, uh, the uh, fabrics were successful there. But ironically, after the period of independence, as you'd mentioned earlier, uh, people wanted to be, uh, uh, you know, wear non-European things or Pan-Africanist things. And so the fabrics were kind of adopted in that, in, um, you know, and there are factories also making the fabrics in, in, um, in Africa as well. Although I'm made to understand now that uh, uh, the fabrics are produced in China uh, these days. Uh, um, so um, that's kind of where it all began. And then I had been trained as a painter. So, you know, I'd learned my, uh, my modernism. You know, I, I knew my, my, Barnett Newman, my Barnett Newman from my Jackson Pollock and all that. So, um, and then I thought, okay, so where do I fit in uh, into the discourse of kind of, you know, modern art as an artist of African origin? So. I started to kind of do abstractions onto the uh, uh, onto the fabric. So, um, and this is the um, the first piece here, uh, known as um, double dutch. Out of curiosity, why was it abstract to representations on the fabrics? Um, because I wanted to. Uh, I was thinking about modern art and the history of uh, modernism and this the. Um, historical symbolism of uh, the modern art often as signifying the kind of male, I guess, heroic painting, you know, usually white male. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there was a lot of discourse around identity politics, you know, gender, queer politics, uh, and, and uh, you know, civil rights movements, and, you know, the artists in the context of this work, um, the artists working, I was interested in people like, you know, Nancy Sparrow, Cindy Sherman, uh, Maplethorpe, uh, um, Glenn Ligon, uh, Fred Wilson. Uh, all of those artists I mentioned were really thinking about, either thinking about race or thinking mm -hmm. about gender. And so when I was in school, it's, uh, 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 those were the people that, that, you know, I was looking at. And so against that background, because no artist actually works in a vacuum, of course, so, uh, against that background, I was also uh, contemplating issues of identity. So I was reading uh, Edward Said, Orientalism, um, and also there was, of course, deconstruction. Uh, um, so um, Jacques Derrida was talking about um, deconstructing the grand narrative. And um, so um, the status quo was being challenged, if you like, in invert, uh, you know, uh, inverted commas. Uh, um, the other, um, the people who were outside or who felt that they were outside of the white male establishment was not only challenging 
the, uh, uh, the, the challenge in the hegemony, the, the dominance of, um, of um, you know, white male uh, culture. So um, historically, I mean, that is why you will see that uh, I tend to take iconic, um, you know, iconic imagery, either in artistry or even sometimes uh, through literature, through texts, mm -hmm. and I would deconstruct them uh, because that's, um, you know, the thing that we were all doing at that time because we were all looking at uh, uh, Jacques Derrida, the French critical theory uh, was the thing that um, we all looked at and also uh, uh, Roland Barthes, I was interested in semiotics, uh, uh, semiotics being uh, um, um, the theory about signs, um, about signifiers and signifieds. Right. So, and that, well, let's put that in a nutshell. I'm just basically breaking down stereotypes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, that was the theory of breaking down stereotypes. If I could describe semiotics as, as, as that, um, that's rather simplistic, but anyway, it's looking at um, the signifiers and, um, you know, looking at science. So uh, there is that very uh, well-known image of Magritte uh, where you see uh, um, it's a picture of a pipe and underneath the pipe it says, uh, this is not a pipe. Right. So the, uh, the picture of a pipe is not necessarily a pipe. So that the... Um, um, the, the, the image of the fabric um, says African, but is it necessarily intrinsically mm -hmm. um, African? So, um, but anyway, so I guess another way of saying that is what you see is not necessarily what you get. Yeah. Uh, to continue actually with your earlier comment on working okay. with iconic imagery with uh, your 2001 painting, The Swing, which of course is modeled after Jean-Honoré Fagrenard's mm -hmm. 1767 painting, The Swing. Uh, you not only have moved the sign from the signifier, but you've broken it right off the canvas and out into three dimensions. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you do choose your subject matter and um, and in particular, in, as you constructed, I mean, I just have to say, I love the fabric that you chose. She's, uh, for, you can't see it, um, but the orange fabric that's pillowing out in the back of her skirt has the Chanel logo on it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering if it was perhaps bootlegged. I don't know if you can comment on that, but uh, it, what, you could, what could you tell us about how you pick your subjects. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that I think um, I find very interesting, or what I like to do really with my art, is that the aspect of frivolity, uh, um, that aspect of play, mm -hmm. you know, is very important. And so, it's very important that the piece is fun, um, that it's, even though it might, be the carrier of um, more complex issues. It's very important for me that I have fun when I do the piece. So mm -hmm. uh, the fabrics, uh, that, that particular Chanel fabric, I got from the shop in Brixton. And uh, the interesting thing actually, there is a backstory to this because uh, this piece then was shown at the, I was uh, nominated for the Turner Prize. Yes. And so this piece was, um, <laughs> It was at the Tate Gallery. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was so much media coverage. It was on television, it was everywhere. And in the shop, I was told that the uh, Chanel people came to the shop to have a quiet world. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you see, they didn't actually approach me because, um, you know, I just bought the fabric from the shop. I mean, uh -huh. I didn't copy it, I didn't, you know, I just used it. So. Um, because the Chanel was kind of concerned that there was no permission and, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but um, so when I went back to the shop, I was told to be 
a little more discreet in the way that I use, <laughs> I use, use the fabrics. Yeah. I did not know that. That's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, in addition to looking at the frivolity of the 18th century, which clearly is um, expressed to the hilt, in this piece you've also looked at a more serious side, and in particular I'm thinking about your recent 2008 series called The Age of Enlightenment, which consists of five different figures, um, great thinkers from the 18th century, including the um, the physicist, mathematician, philosopher Jean-Laurent d'Alembert, the economist Adam Smith, and as we have here, the chemist um, Antoine Lavoisier, and it, I hope you all have already seen this piece as it's right outside the Ring Auditorium. It's now in the permanent collection of the Hirshhorn Museum and will remain on view on Sunday. If you didn't get to see it already today, you should certainly make a point of coming back. But, um, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about why these five individuals to represent the Enlightenment and also why you chose to depict them with a disability? Well, um, what, what um, I have to say is that a lot of my work is actually about, often it's about something that's happening at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it could be something in the news or something um, happening now and so when, you know, the Iraq war happened, well, since, since uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about taking, you know, democracy to the, to the Middle East. Um, and um, so, and then there's the idea that, you know, the spread of democracy would somehow, you know, Western democracy would make mm -hmm. everything all right. So I, I drew parallels with co the colonialism of the past and the idea of, you know, the Western um, ideas of enlightenment uh, as a way of um, civilizing the natives, and um, and then um, you know, and then I, I was also thinking about. Um, you know, sometimes there are many layers in my work. So, on top of that, I was also thinking about the, the tools, because if you think of the Enlightenment then as enabling um, um, kind of science, and, and a lot of the weapons of war uh, came actually out of scientific research. And the weapons of war then um, can also be, ironically, the Enlightenment itself can produce um, irrational human uh, um, ends. So, so in other words, if you like, the, the war that we use those tools or, uh, um, for mm -hmm. become, you know, so, so that the so-called, you know, rational, rational um, machines uh, uh, become they perform irrational acts, so they cease actually. So there's a kind of a, a kind of a contradiction because um, uh, the liberating uh, um, tools then you know then also kill people. Then of course the, that then equates with this notion or this idea that actually to to spread democracy you got to kill a few people, you know. So that that's also, but that's not very enlightened. That's yeah. a sort of that's an irrational act. So um, then, uh, in relation to the actual piece, um, I was then thinking about the, the um, you know, the, the, the figures that represent um, enlightenment also do have uh, vulnerabilities also. And those vulnerabilities um, then remove this kind of heroic uh, going out to, to kind of conquer the world. If you're in effect vulnerable yourself, um, mm -hmm. then with your science, you're not able to kind of. So it's a, it's a and then it's also an expression of my own uh, physical um, vulnerabilities as well, if you like. So I don't know, you know, um, as much as the next person, you know, I do have my own kind of 
and I have my own kind of physical vulnerabilities. So the so-called um, uh, heroic, uh, you know, figures who are supposed to kind of uh, save the world also have those vulnerabilities as well. So, so in a way, uh, those champions of um, of reason, if mm -hmm. you like, have uh, um, actually shown them in a uh, in a vulnerable in in a more vulnerable state. But but at the same time, that the the you see, it also depends on the audience because actually, uh, the the fact of their physical disability may say vulnerability, but in fact, depending on who is looking, it may not actually be vulnerability. It is what I mean. So, so, so I mean, there are many uh, uh, levels of uh, paradox, I guess. I guess paradox is quite difficult to capture in a work of art. So the question I often get asked by a lot of people mm -hmm. is they, have, they tend to have difficulty with the contradictions within my, my work. Mm -hmm. Because the way the world is constructed is that you're supposed to just have one way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. but, but my work refuses that. So, and that's very difficult for a lot of people. Because they say, but yeah, but you're saying that, but then you're also saying the opposite at the same time. But I actually think uh, that area in the middle of doubt actually uh, produces, uh, it, it's, it's the thing that makes it possible to avoid black and whites, which then creates the Holocaust. Now that's a, I don't know if you get my meaning. Absolutely, logic can lead to illogical conclusions. Yes, so there is always a questioning uh, um, internally within the actual ideas or the work, but anyway. Well based on what you were saying actually okay. on uh, the relationship between your historical subjects sometimes in contemporary politics. I should probably be careful in how I introduce the next image, but I should say for the audience's sake that this really says more about my brain than it does necessarily Yinka's. Um, also from this series is, as I mentioned, Jean-Laurent d'Alembert, and, and for those of you who don't recognize, standing next to him is Donald Rumsfeld who is notorious for always standing at a desk and not wanting to sit down. And so uh, it just led me to wonder how it is you chose or choose how to pose your figures. Well, I mean, some of that is, you know, if there's a particular um, figure that I'm wanting to represent mm -hmm. now, you have to understand that represent is not the same as represent. Okay. Um, represent, hyphenated represent. Mm -hmm. So when I represent, I represent, so when I represent, I do to the figure what the figure does not uh, hold within itself. So uh, in other words, uh, somebody might say to me, oh, but that particular figure did not have that particular disability. But it is not a representation, it is representation. Mm -hmm. Quite different. So I may take a photograph uh, of the figure that I'm trying to do something to, mm -hmm. and I may pose uh, like the photograph, but then I may just choose to lie, uh, because as artists we're liars. Um, <laughs> uh, fiction is, is- I thought it was called creative license. Uh, fiction is, is uh, my raison d'etre, fiction is my job, so. Um, so, so in a way, as an artist, I am not. So um, I'm just kind of emphatically saying this because I, I do get a bit wary when people say, oh, but this person was not like this, so mm. why did you do this? Duh. <laughs> you know. I, I think that sums it up. Um, yeah. Moving, uh, moving on to another of your of your um, grand sculptural tableau, and I have to say that I can only imagine the laughter in your studio as as these figures were being um, created. You've looked at power dynamics in your work, um, you know, as they relate to to gender, to disability, to race, to class, and of course 
to sex as well. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could comment sort of on how you use beauty and humor to, to tease out these disparities between what, um, what people say and what they do. Yes, I mean, I think that um, living in Britain, I think, um, you know, there is something about sort of British humor. I mean, and also historically, uh, if you look at people like, you know, uh, William Hogarth and mm -hmm. some of his um, drawings, uh, because he, he really poked fun at the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so a lot of this comes from satire and just basically, you know, poking fun at the establishment, which is a lot of fun. And, um, and of course, it's also that fun, uh, that poking fun at the establishment is also about uh, um, wanting to be a part of the establishment. So the, uh, the, the things I actually poke fun at, um, I also love as well. Because mm -hmm. if I didn't love them, I wouldn't give that much attention to it. You know, they are so luscious, so, so uh, <laughs> you've certainly given them attention. You know, so there is a, um, you know, so some of the works are essentially, a lot of my work is, is critique in some kind of way. You know, there yeah. is something that I'm critiquing or, or something that I'm not happy about. But rather than, um, you know, <coughs> scream about it, I mm. guess I make art about it. But um, so, and um, I want people to, you know, to at first, you know, engage and um, have fun with the pieces. And then maybe they might get to the next level and think, okay, so why has he really done that? You know, so that's kind of where it's coming from. And I forgot to mention, for those of you who don't know, this piece, of course, was what um, Yinka created for Documenta in 2002 for that very well-known um, art fair that occurs in Kassel, Germany. So it had a grand presence there and, of course, has, has continued to tour. But we're quite excited that, as part of the retrospective, the pieces have been reassembled. Yeah, I mean, I can also explain further. I mean, this piece is called Gallantry and Criminal Conversation. And I learned that criminal conversation in the 18th century is what you would be accused of if you had an affair. Mm. And, um, and also, um, a lot of uh, members of the aristocracy used to go to places like uh, Venice uh, on the Grand Tour to learn about uh, culture, essentially. And um, people actually ended up um, going to, you know, people had extramarital affairs, I suppose, um, and they did things they couldn't necessarily do at home. And of course, that's also happening today as well um, uh, in terms of kind of sex tourism and so on. So, well, as um, we say in the United States, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, exactly, so, <laughs> so exactly. So, and, uh, and usually the privilege of the wealthy as well, you know, so, and so it's kind of, um, along those lines. Um, it's interesting to me too, because of course the figures are fully clothed. You don't ever actually see anything. And that strikes me as, a, a, I mean, your newest work and what I'm showing here is uh, two works from an exhibition that Yinka just opened last month. So these pieces are currently on view at the Stephen Friedman Gallery in London. and. That, that teasing, suggestive, but never quite revealed quality. Um, now we, I mean, you're using nudity. The, the violence is apparent. I was, I was curious as to why. Well, this piece is um, the whole, um, is that the only image you have? It's somewhat confusing. Uh, unfortunately, I do. So these are from a body of works that Yinka has done that, uh, well, you will talk about why you chose Willie Loman as a subject, but Willie Loman, of course, is the main character from Arthur Miller's uh, 1949 Pulitzer Prize winning play, The Death of a Salesman. So I do apologize, I don't have the, the full series. Okay, no, that's fine. So, um, yes, well, the exhibition, um, it's actually in London now. It closes on the 20th of November, I think, okay. at uh, Stephen Friedman Gallery. And um, the exhibition is called Willie Loman, uh, The Rise and Fall. 
and I was thinking really, I mean, just generally thinking about the credit crunch actually. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so when you enter this space, uh, what you see is the Willie Loman character from um, Arthur Millen's uh, Death of a Salesman. Um, and he is in a crashed car because of course the original character crashed his car for the insurance money, you mm -hmm. know, for his children. But he was a failed um, salesman, really, kind of, um, you know, rather like some of the Wall Street guys who um, don't really have a clue about the financial instruments that they're kind of working with. So, and the whole thing sort of went pear-shaped. And, and so, so in a sense, uh, so you see, you see this uh, character, uh, you see this crashed car, but then you see these large photographs on the wall and they depict him on the other side. So he's in, um, you see him in different stages of Dante's Inferno, so Dante's Hell. Hmm. And for, in Dante's Inferno, um, there are different punishments for different types of crimes. So um, there is, um, so the series goes, so there's um, in avarice, and then you see the, you know, the people pushing, all these new people are kind of pushing money bags. And, um, and then I think what you have there is the, the gluttons. Yes. So they're like pig's heads and so on. And then you've got the thieves as well on one side, which is um, all these people have been kind of strangled by snakes and the Willie Loman character is there. So when I was shooting that in my studio, I had like, and I had about 30 snakes or something all running around. And they were shooting them. <laughs> and then the, the, snake, the snake handlers were like running after them. It, it was quite a fun shoot, you know. But, um, you know, so, I mean, that's kind of what that, you know, the show that's on at the moment. So that's kind of more or less what that's about, yeah. Okay. And, um, of course, those photographs that you were just describing are by no means your first foray into photography in particular um, the use of your own image within photographs and what we're seeing here is the 2001 series Dorian Gray based on both the Oscar Wilde uh, 19th century novel and the um, 1945 MGM film called The Picture of Dorian Gray and in this body of work I mean, you can see how your interest in the dandy and theatricality um, and representation all coalesce. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you determined the um, design and casting and pace of your own depiction of, of this um, work of literature and film. Um, well, I mean, I, I was actually, I was thinking about I mean, this work is kind of quite personal, I think. It's the, it's the first time I've really, you know, contemplated or thought about, uh, you know, the body and my own disability and, um, you know, because I, I mean, some of you know this, I got, I got a virus in my spine when I was 19, which mm -hmm. left me completely paralyzed. And then I gradually, um, you know, recovered from that. And, um, so, you know, the, the figure, the Dorian Gray figure in the picture of Dorian Gray, um, he, you know, his picture was uh, painted by a painter and over time uh, the picture stayed young and then he, um, no, he stayed young, sorry, and the picture got older and more grotesque and he just looked younger and younger. And, you know, so, and I was, um, you know, thinking really about the, my own mortality really and um, my own kind of struggles with my body over time as well mm -hmm. and um, and so and it's a, you know it's a film that also I'm very intrigued by mm -hmm. and um, and I wanted to sort of do um, I guess put myself in Dorian Gray's um, you know in just play the kind of Dorian Gray character myself and um, so, I mean, I don't quite know what you want to know, really, but it's more well, or less. It's also interesting to me how you choose the faces of the others, and and you did distill, you know, a larger narrative and a larger film into 
12 images. So, you know, I was curious a little bit about your own process of, of um, uh, storyboarding. Well, I mean, I think I just took um, significant moments in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when, his, when his portrait was painted, when he, fe when he fell in love with the actress, Sybil Vane, who then committed suicide mm -hmm. because he wouldn't marry her because she was of a different class. You know, so I was also intrigued by those storylines. And, uh, and then, of course, the image of the painter who painted him and, and then the, his uh, assassination of the painter um, to, to, yeah, so when he was um, disturbed by this grotesque um, image, yeah. I guess it also leads me to ask the question, um, what is a day in the work life of Yinka Shonabari MBE like? Well, I think the, um, the great thing about, I guess, uh, choosing to be an artist is that, you know, it's always changing, it's always varied. And, um, and it, you know, as you can see, I work in different ways and um, so it depends. I, I have periods in which I actually want to work with a lot of people. So, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm auditioning actors and, uh, um, you know, and, and, you know, so, and I'm ma making storyboards or whatever, but then, Sometimes I just, I mean, at the moment, actually, for the most part, I'm doing drawing mm -hmm. uh, because in my, um, in the new show in London, I'm showing works on paper for the first time. And, you know, so it varies. I mean, it goes, you know, there might be a period where I just want to be intimate, you know, in my studio. I ju we just want to draw and I don't really want to be involved with a lot of people. But then it changes again if I'm doing a photo shoot or a film shoot or whatever, then I'm on location, you know, so okay. it, it depends on what I'm doing, really. I want to allow enough time for the audience to ask questions, too. I, if we have time, I'd wanted to ask you about your first cinematic work and your influences like Greenaway, Godard, um, René, as well as the relationship between painting and film. But since you were just talking on photographs, or I mean on drawing, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, to your recent works that you have turned to works on paper, and I thought perhaps you would want to talk a little bit more about um, your your recent body yeah, of work. I mean, what you see there is uh, a piece called, uh, I guess, Climate Shit Drawing. Mm -hmm. and I did a series on that, and, um, and that image up there is actually the image of shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but you know it's uh, and then I've got bits of Financial Times and um, and sort of doodles and text and um, you know so yeah. Okay, but then I'll go back and give you the chance to answer my question about perhaps um, some of your thoughts about the the relationship between film and and paint. Um, well, I mean, I, I, um, the kind of films, you know, that I've looked at when I was, well, when I was doing this one, mm. I looked at a number of films that I, read, uh, that I liked very much and they sort of inspired me. There's a film called uh, The Russian Ark that I liked very much and that film was done in one take um, and it's a film that takes you through the Armitage in Russia, is it the Armitage? And uh, it's a very beautiful film. And, and then Peter Greenaway's uh, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and the Lover. Um, I mean, this film is based on Verdi's opera. Mm -hmm. um, it's based, uh, called Mbalo Mascara. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's based on the story of, again, you know, this was done during the Iraq War. Um, I was, the, the film is based on Gustav III and in, of Sweden, you know, and he, um, he was fighting wars in Russia and in Denmark and his people were starving and he liked uh, going to the ball and he, um, he was assassinated, you know, at one of the balls and I thought it was an in intriguing story but I changed uh, the king into um, a woman and I changed the killer into a woman as well. 
Um, I just wanted to change the kind of roles that we are familiar with in regular kind of cinema. Mm -hmm. You know, so so actually, you know, gender politics, you know, plays into the, even the casting when I was casting. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, so there, you know, there are kind of subtle uh, um, things that I, you know, political things or whatever that sort of happen in the making or how things are done. And, and the film uses a lot of kind of uh, uh, repetition as well. So the, the king is shot, uh, the king dies, but then there's a possibility for redemption perhaps, you know, the king gets up again and he dies, but also the, de the device for that repetition, it's more to do with, uh, um, you know, when you go into a museum and you watch the video, mm -hmm. it, it usually goes on a loop. And what I wanted to do was to have the actors reenact the idea of the loop, so that when you see the second time, the action is slightly different. It's not the same as the, you know, so the actors have to repeat. And, um, and you know, again, you know, metaphorically speaking, you know, history repeats as well. And, and then, of course, I wanted it to be a, a kind of, you know, mesmerizing, hypnotic imagery, you know, um, mm -hmm. kind of compelling um, imagery. I guess one way of do, you know saying this is that I just I, you know I make the I make the other I want to see basically mm -hmm. you know if I want to see something and I don't see that anyone else is making it then I'll make it <laughs> so for the most part you know I'm making the art for myself. Which then leads me to your next so. line, uh, last question. If it, oops, go back. Let's see. Which is, I know that your um, that Anne Marie, your studio manager, has bought out the gift shop at um, the Air and Space Museum. <laughs> so I was hoping that you might tell us a little bit about where you're going from here. Well, I mean, I've made. Um, I'm I'm very interested in, uh, as you know, you know, a lot of my work does deal with the issue of. Um, uh, colonialism, uh, um, which is why, of course, I was, um, you know, paradoxically quite um, excited when I, you know, when I was made a member of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, s space travel is another kind of um, uh, colonialism, if you like, it's the next frontier. And uh, so I am intrigued by science fiction and space travel. So, and uh, I'm going to be doing a new series of works for a show in Australia uh, related to that subject matter. But I, I have in the past, if you look in the catalog, um, touched on that subject matter a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely, one of my all-time favorite pieces is Vacation, actually. All right. So, okay. Um, well, before I turn this over to the audience, I want you all to know that, of course, you can come see Black Gold, Mbalo and Mascara, The Swing, um, the Dorian Gray series. All of these works are on view through March 7th at the National Museum of African Art. So make sure you go to see Strange Bodies and make sure you come down the street to see us. And then, Malena, if you would take over for the questions or what's the... Okay. There's one on this side. No, the, uh, there's a questioner over here. Okay, sorry. Come, come. Can you open the waterfall? I'll tell you when I go. No, I don't. As an artist, I don't work. Other people do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that you're in a lot of the photographic images. 
What do you want me to say? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, it's cheaper to employ myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, some pieces I make because, um, you know, if it's about me, I guess I should be in it. So, um, that's it really. I mean, there's nothing more to it. No, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I think, um, you know, sometimes people do over-analyze. Over um, I mean, that's not to say that the work is not, uh, that the work is not serious. I mean, the work is serious, but, uh, you see, because I'm, I'm an artist, really. I'm not really, I'm not an art historian, and I'm not an academic, so um, I can be more frivolous and whimsical and usually academics are uh, not whimsical. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's just, a, that's just, me, stereo that's just me stereotyping. <laughs> we do have one question that was actually emailed that I'll ask while the, the mic goes back. Yinka, have you ever closed your eyes and imagined yourself wearing not the black suits of Dorian Gray, but one cut from Dutch, Dutch wax batiks? and your imagination, where would you be seen wearing it and what would you be doing? <laughs> That's private. <laughs> yes. So I was just wondering if you've ever been inspired by one of those artists. Um, well, I mean, the artists you mentioned, you know, when I lived in Nigeria, um, I saw that they were artists and it was possible to be, um, you know, to do that profession. So if um, I haven't been influenced directly by them, certainly when I was a lot younger living in Nigeria, um, they gave me a sense that um, being an artist was uh, an option that, that uh, you know that I could take up. So, so in that sense, um, they were uh, my role models. In that sense, um, so yeah, I guess, yeah. Thanks. Um, many of the figures in your sculptures don't have heads; they're rendered headless and. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that choice, if it has to do with um, maybe offering multiple identification or a sense of alienation or maybe... Well, I mean, that headlessness thing, I mean, that kind of started off as a, well, a joke about the French Revolution. When the, um, when the aristocracy, you know, when they had their heads chopped off. And also, on another level, I, I mean, if you look closely at my figures, they are actually of mixed, mixed heritage. So they're, they're neither black nor white. And I thought that actually removing the face would remove racial specificity. So, but, gosh, that's a difficult word to say, specificity. As a Yoruba speaker, my tongue doesn't carry that word very well. Anyway, so, um, so we'll remove a racial specificity. And um, so, um, and I, 
think that, but that said, it's also a way to remove any kind of stereotyping. So, and so, met, you know, so metaphorically, I was doing something I had described in the past as being post-racial. So challenging this idea of a fixed uh, race uh, removes the possibility of uh, oppression or stereotyping. Yeah. So actually, I do make um, serious things about serious, um, serious work about serious issues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, headless man trying to drink kind of um, makes me chuckle sometimes. And I think, don't laugh at your own jokes. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if, um, about the piece, um, the gallantry and criminal conversation, and I think it was referred to this evening as a tableau, and the way it's installed in this exhibition strikes me clearly as a tableau, like a grouping of figures that belong together in this group. And yet, I think if I, when I looked at the, the, the text for the individual pieces, that it seems like they're all in different collections now. And I was just curious about that, if you could comment that. Were, was it more of a series? like the Age of Enlightenment, where they're discrete figures that aren't necessarily displayed together, or was it actually envisioned as a tableau? And if so, if, if there's any story behind why the pieces are now separated and reunited for the exhibition, or what the situation is with that? Well, I mean, I guess um, artists are sort of high maintenance, and um, if you, um, if you make a piece that big, you're not going to find a single collection that's going to buy it. So you make a choice. Do I sell or not? So, I mean, it's a very practical thing. We had an agreement with the, um, with the various people who collected the pieces that, um, you know, that whenever we show, they will lend to, to the show. So in other words, it's been broken down into different collections because it's actually quite difficult to sell such a large piece to one collection, you know. Um, so that's, you know, I, I'm sorry it's not a more complex reason, you know. Um, it's just practical, you know. Yeah, but it, it is one piece though. Oh, is it yeah. okay if I ask my question now? Oh, okay. Um, the young lady in the back asked the question about the headlessness of your figures. That was going to be my question, and I'm glad she did because she added nuances that weren't in my brain yet. I was going to just ask you when was the aha moment that you thought of doing that. But my other question is, um, and I love the ironies in the work, my other question is, is there a circumstance in which you would consider putting heads on a figure, and if so, what might that be? Well, when they are um, real people in my photographs, I tend not to uh, chop their heads off. Um, and I'm sure you can understand that. Uh, it might get, get me into trouble, so. So, you know, yeah. I don't know how oh, this is working. Um, follow up also on the head, headless issue. Um, you had mentioned they were headless and you made them that sort of erase the idea of, of race, but they're, they're a cinnamon color, the, every, the figures themselves in your tableaus when the actual figures have this color to them. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. The figures in each tableau, the pigment of the skin is a cinnamon, deep brown. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there a racialization applied by your choice of color? Shoot me. Um, 
It's a color. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's has a it has a message, I guess. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I wanted something that um, could pass for both black or white, right? So maybe the color I chose didn't work out. I, I don't know, but um, I didn't want to fix a kind of a, um, a very clear black and white thing. Um, and that's the way I chose to do it. I guess. I have a question over here. I, uh, I went and visited your show at the Museum of African Art today, and I, I like there was a fun little corner where you had um, your playlist and you had um, the video of Dorian Gray playing. Was that your idea or was that the curators to put that together? The video of Dorian, oh, well, that's the education. Yeah, you mean here, that's right? The education part? Yeah, yeah. So oh, it was fun. I wanted to know if you have taken any of your sculptures to the continent of Africa, and if you have, what has been the reception for them? If I had taken any of them to Africa. Okay. Yes, I mean, I've done exhibitions in um, uh, Ghana, uh, South Africa, but not, not Nigeria yet. I mean, I get, you know, I just do the exhibitions uh, that I get invited to do, I guess. So, um, and so I've been invited to do shows in South Africa and in, in Ghana. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good evening. Um, you were talking a lot about frivolity and play in the work, um, and sort of piggybacking off of this question about um, the headlessness and the color of skin. I wonder a lot about the role of imagination because I connect that with play and frivolity. So I wonder about the message of um, the imagination of race and um, how that plays out in the way that the figures are placed and what they are doing um, and, and also the role of uh, sex and power and the placement of the bodies. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, no, hold on, don't take the, um, you know, there's a lot in what you said, right? It's actually, so, so can you be more specific? Um, so with the piece on um, criminal conversation, yes. sort of my thought is when I hear about the skin color to some people not seeming ambiguous about race, that to me signals that there are, there is an imagined color of what we are supposed to be. So imagining that a particular color must belong to a certain race, to me is where you fit on the spectrum. So I could look at the skin color and not necessarily identify it as either black or white, but perhaps in our culture where we're taught to look at brown skin and assume and give a, a racial designation to it, um, the imagination tells us a story about what the skin color looks like. And then that, for me, connects also to sort of the sexualization of those bodies um, and how we imagine the bodies being sexualized and what added meaning that gives. Well, you know, I like your comments very much. And the reason I like your comments is that uh, your comments really, uh, you know, your comments have actually explained why, why I do what I do. Because uh, there is, uh, the politics of race or racial politi politics is so fraught. 
uh, there is a lot of uh, historical pain um, attached to, to uh, notions of race and the politics of inequality and so on. So it's a very complex area. And I think that uh, by removing faces, um, sort of saying, you know, this is, a, um, this, is a, this is a generic person. So that, uh, but the interesting thing about the readings, what I find interesting, what I'm doing is actually, what I'm doing in that sense is, is irrelevant. What is actually relevant is the baggage that people bring into their viewing of my work. And that baggage is an expression of a historical problem that we have all inherited. So I enjoyed your comments. Yeah.